Welcome to Renal Cell Cancer Update. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. As in many of our recent interview programs, I asked the faculty for this issue to present patients from their practices to help understand the clinical implications of emerging research data. And to begin, Dr. Robert Figlin presents a man who was eligible for but chose not to enter one of the most important ongoing clinical trials in this field. The first patient is a 72-year-old gentleman that I saw who had a history of new-onset hematuria. He had comorbid diseases, including insulin-dependent diabetes, as well as mild hypertension controlled with antihypertensives, who was seen by a urologist and found to have a 7.5-centimeter mass in the upper pole of his left kidney. Interestingly, he had a bit of renal azotemia with a creatinine of about 1.5 and was referred to the urologist who looked at him, repeated a CT scan of his chest, abdomen, and MRI scan, found that he had no evidence of metastases in his chest, identified on MRI scan of his abdomen that he had no renal vein or IVC involvement, but that the upper pole lesion that was a little over 7 centimeters looked like it was encroaching on the hilum of the kidney And although nephron sparing surgery was his goal, he didn't know if he would be able to accomplish that at the time of surgery. He took the patient to the operating room, and in the operating room with a laparoscopic procedure, was unable to perform a nephron sparing procedure, and the patient actually underwent a left radical nephrectomy, and the left radical nephrectomy revealed a T3A lesion with tumor extending into gerotis fascia but not through, No lymph nodes were involved, and he had no evidence of metastatic disease. He had an uneventful recovery and was referred to me for a discussion of the role of adjuvant therapy and unfortunately had a creatinine of 2.0 following surgical resection. And it raises many interesting issues as it relates to the current management of patients with primary tumors intact. Had this person had metastatic disease, the question would have been, is there a role for upfront treatment? And even if he didn't have metastatic disease, as the patient presented to me, what's the role for post-operative adjuvant therapy in a patient who has comorbid disease, can be offered clinical trial or non-clinical trial treatment, and yet has to struggle through his insulin-dependent diabetes, his hypertension, and the potential role for many of our current agents in this adjuvant setting. What clinical trial or trials might he have been eligible for? So I think that the neoadjuvant treatment trials that are taking place across the country are complicated, complicated in large part because it's easy to give many of our agents neoadjuvantly, But for those of us that are old enough to remember the role of neoadjuvant therapy, the role of neoadjuvant therapy is treating a patient for local disease that allows for the ability to render that person disease-free following definitive treatment. And as I said to Chris Wood at a meeting that we had just a couple weeks ago at ASCO GU, I asked him at Anderson whether he's seen patients that are receiving neoadjuvant treatment that he would not have otherwise been able to operate on. And his response was very clear, and it is that all the patients that he's seen neoadjuvantly, he could have performed a definitive resection without neoadjuvant therapy. So for the practicing oncologist and urologist, we have to remember that the neoadjuvant approach to patients is undefined. 
And even though we can give agents like sunitinib or bevacizumab safely, the true role in the setting of a resectable patient is yet to be delineated. I have to say that neoadjuvant therapy of renal cancer, I'm not sure I've heard about that. I mean, do you actually use it? We do not, because my own personal belief is that in the hands of an excellent surgeon, patients should be rendered disease-free and then considered for adjuvant therapy. And patients that have such locally advanced disease, IVC involvement, possibly above the liver, lymph node involvement, possibly such a large tumor comorbid disease that doesn't permit the safe resection, I'm not sure that the neoadjuvant approach is going to render those patients resectable. And in fact, Brian Reaney recently discussed that the overall response rate to the neoadjuvant approach with reduction of size of the primary tumor is only about 20%. So the true benefits to neoadjuvant therapy, I think, for the practicing physician are experimental and, again, in the hands of a well-trained urologic oncologist, surgery is the mainstay. So what about adjuvant trials? Yeah, so in this patient, we then entered into a very long discussion with him about the role of adjuvant therapy. And it's interesting because we're in evolution. The Southwest Oncology Group trial is entering the last phases of its entry criteria. It's a 1,300-patient trial. We currently have, as I understand, almost 1,200 patients on that trial. It's a comparison between sunitinib, standard dosing, 50 milligrams, four weeks on, two weeks off, serafinib, standard dosing, two pills twice a day, or a placebo. And the things that we're learning, at least in my own practice, not yet borne out by the data because we really haven't seen it, nor will we see it at ASCO, is that giving these targeted agents in the adjuvant setting at a time when a person has a significant but not 100% chance of cure just by the surgery alone means that you have to have a very candid conversation with the person about the risks and benefits. So in this person, we offered him the Southwest Oncology Group trial. We talked to him about the fact that he had comorbid disease and a creatinine of 1.9. He was certainly still eligible for the trial because you had to have a creatinine of two or less. But he was really unwilling to take the risk of worsening of his hypertension because of the angiogenesis inhibitors and his history of hypertension. Not so much the worsening of his diabetes, but he was really very focused on the quality of his life and issues related to how he was going to live out the next part of his life, knowing that should the cancer return, there were agents currently available and maybe even more agents available in the future. So in a balanced discussion, people are now making decisions about, do I want to be treated now on a clinical research trial? Do I want to take my chances and wait until later and receive therapy should the cancer come back? And in balance, what should I do? And I think until, and this is the way I practice, until we have definitive data that demonstrates a benefit from any of the adjuvant trials ongoing, whether it's the Southwest Oncology Group trial, that's the ECOG trial, whether it's the sunitinib versus placebo trial, whether it's the trials going on in Europe, until we have definitive answers about the true benefits of adjuvant therapy, my own belief is the standard of care is careful follow-up. And that's what we'll do for this specific 72-year-old gentleman. We'll follow his cancer regularly with CAT scans and physical examinations and laboratory and only treat him at the time of evidence of progression. 
Now, what was your estimate of his risk of relapse without therapy? And in general, how do you make that estimation? Yeah, so this is where our prognostic systems are really extraordinarily helpful. And whether it's the UCLA Integrated Staging System, which I helped develop with Ari Beldegren, whether it's the Mayo Clinic staging system that's used, or the validation that came out of Europe, basically we're looking at things like TNM, performance status, and grade. We can sometimes add other things, a nice article in the recent Journal of Urology that suggested that C-reactive protein could add something to the prognostic ability to identify how a person will do. But in this gentleman, I estimated that his overall five-year survival, cancer-specific survival, was about 50-50. And that's a very balanced discussion. And remember that in these adjuvant trials, we go all the way from patients with high-risk stage 1B disease all the way to patients with stage 3C disease and N2 positive. And those people can have anywhere from a 20 to 30% chance of recurrence to an 80% chance of recurrence over five years. And we're not yet clear about what the true role of adjuvant therapy will be across that. And I encourage, to your question, I encourage all urologists and all oncologists when presenting patients with adjuvant options to at least for the patient estimate using known prognostic variables the chances that that person will recur during a five-year period, how the person will be followed in the event that they choose or don't choose the study so that they can make informed decisions about the extent to which they're willing to go through the potential toxicity. I'm curious about the patients who actually enter these trials, particularly the SWOG trial that you were mentioning. Obviously, it's placebo-controlled, but can you sort of make educated guesses about who's being treated, and what are you actually seeing as these people get out towards a year? Yeah, so I think that obviously all I can speak to is the individual patients at my own institution, and we have a substantial number of those. I think there's a couple things. Now that we have a very good understanding of the spectrum of toxicities from sunitinib and serafinib, and they've been around for a number of years, it's pretty easy to distinguish on average who's getting what agent in the adjuvant setting. Having said that, We may be entirely wrong when we see the final data, but you know who's on a placebo and who's not receiving any of the toxicities associated with any of these tyrosine kinase inhibitors. But having said that, I'm also finding it becoming a difficult conversation as people go along toward the end of a year when balancing the toxicities versus stopping therapy. And I've had many conversations with my research nurse, with my patients and their families, with a balanced discussion. We've gone as far as we can. We're getting toward a year. And really, we don't know that a year is a magic number. And sometimes we've had to stop people prematurely because of toxicity. Some people who've just come in to see us and said, Doc, you know, I know you want me to stay on the trial. I want to stay on the trial. I value what you're doing. I want you to continue to follow me, but I really don't feel as well as I think I could feel if I stopped this medication, and I'd like to stop and just take my chances and see how I do. Now, in a year or two, when we have more results from these cooperative group trials in the adjuvant setting, I'll be able to respond by saying, well, there's great value in your staying on the treatment, and this is the value, and let's put up with the side effects. But at the moment, we don't know what that value is, and we have to do that in the context of taking care of patients. What are the specific toxicities or symptoms that are causing you or causing patients to consider stopping? 
you know, the big toxicities are tiredness. People just get burnout and fatigued. And we can make a prediction that that may be more associated with sunitinib than with serafinib, but we'll have to wait and see how that plays out because, as you know, some of these people will possibly recur. So fatigue is one. The second biggest one is some mild to moderate hand-foot syndrome that's associated with just discomfort. I mean, many of these people are trying to live normal lives, carry out normal activities, and many of those normal activities obviously use their hands and feet. And the adjuvant patient, despite our best efforts to use things to modify the side effects, may really not tolerate the side effects in the adjuvant setting. Are there trials that are being done or considered or being discussed with other agents outside the TKIs? There are discussions about bevacizumab, and certainly one would imagine that that might be an agent that might have a better therapeutic index. And I'd certainly like to see that trial done. I think currently that trial would have to be compared to placebo because we have no best agent out there. And I think one of the conundrums that we are all in in terms of the management of kidney cancer patients, whether it's in the metastatic setting or in the adjuvant setting, is the literature has not really helped us very much in terms of choosing between agents. So we have many phase three trials that we can analyze compared with interferon, but we have no phase three trials that compare agent A to agent B to agent C to compare them with each other. We're starting to see some of that. In the metastatic setting, for example, there's a randomized trial comparing a newer agent, pazopinib, with sunitinib, and that's a very important trial independent of the result because finally we're getting a comparison of two tyrosine kinase inhibitors and their ability to produce both benefit and a toxicity profile. And, you know, you were part of a paper that was presented at ASCA. I'm always have my eyes open or ears open when I see tissue biomarker translational studies. And you had a paper looking at pizopinib, looking at some of the tissue predictors. And I've got to say, I'm not sure I understood all that science involved. Maybe you can explain that to me because it looked pretty interesting. Yeah, I'm happy to do that. And thank you for asking. So Tom Hudson was the first author. I was the senior author. And this is a manuscript that's now under review at the Journal of Clinical Oncology, and we're hopeful that it will be accepted. And in that trial, we looked at pizopinib as a second-generation VEGF tyrosine kinase inhibitor, and it produced results that appeared very promising, progression-free survival, overall response rate comparable to what one would have expected from other TKIs. But we wanted to go a step further, and we asked a couple questions. First question was, is there anything circulating that one could use to predict how people would benefit from these agents and who might or might not benefit? And one thing that we found was soluble VEGF receptor 2, something that will be pretty easy to measure in the serum, seems to be a prediction of response and progression-free survival. And I'm hopeful that other people will confirm that. And then if confirmed, companies will pick that up to help us start to delineate who might benefit and who might not benefit. The other thing that we did in just under 80 patients was there's always been the hypothesis that, boy, people with VHL abnormalities seem to be the perfect person to benefit from a TKI, as opposed to those with so-called wild type, where they have no mutations or hypermethylations. And we looked at that prospectively, and interestingly enough, and it's really changed the way I'm thinking about this, 
First, we found that about 90% of people have either a mutation or a hypermethylation of the VHL gene. The literature had often said, well, somewhere around 60 to 75%. And I think much of the literature now agrees that if you look hard enough with better techniques, the overwhelming majority, upwards of 90%, have these abnormalities, which means that wild-type VHL is of less frequent disease, even though under the microscope it looks like clear cell. But we were unable to distinguish response to these targeted agents, whether you have wild-type or mutated or hypermethylated disease, meaning that probably that's not going to be a very good discriminator of who we should choose. So why put people through the expense of taking their tissue and analyzing their genetic profile if the treatments are so good that independent of the genetic profile, they benefit? And I actually had a conversation with Dan Van Hoff just a couple days ago about that. Genetic profiling is very important when it predicts for something, whatever the disease is, but when the treatments become so robust as to act in multiple disease types, the genetic profile might not be as important as our ability to produce those robust responses. Can you talk a little bit more about the pathophysiology of the VHL protein and the different substances and also how the different TKIs work? They have multiple. I mean, pizopinib in this paper, you point out several different mechanisms. Can you paint a picture of these pathways? So I think the first thing is abnormalities of VHL, the von Hippel-Lindau gene, which occurs in patients with the genetic disease called von Hippel-Lindau syndrome, occurs in sporadic kidney cancer in a majority of clear cell tumors. And that drives a very specific biology. That specific biology is activation of hypoxia-inducible factor alpha, so-called HIF. When you activate HIF, the HIF byproducts of the downstream targets activate a series of events. The most common event that we're dealing with today is activation of tumor angiogenesis. And that angiogenesis leads to growth of tumor with feeding blood vessels in the endothelial cell that leads to the cancer's ability to outgrow its normal tissue. And all of the agents that we're talking about, whether it's sunitinib, serafinib, some of the newer agents like pizopinib or axitinib, are VEGF receptor tyrosine kinase inhibitors, inhibiting the phosphorylation of the tyrosine kinase that allows for the upregulation of those downstream effects like angiogenesis. We also have agents like bevacizumab, and bevacizumab is a VEGF ligand inhibitor. So the ligand that stimulates the endothelial cell to activate the receptor is blocked by bevacizumab. Now, one of the things that we're really learning, and I'm quite interested in, is the fact that although we have many, currently several, soon to be more, tyrosine kinase inhibitors, they are all not created equal. They are not created equal from the perspective of the concentrations that are necessary to inhibit the receptor. They're not equal in terms of the dirty targets that they hit away from the ones that benefit the patient, the so-called off-target effects. And it very well may be that the differentiating features between agents like sunitinib and serafinib and soon-to-be pizopinib and axitinib that are in clinical trials may be more a reflection of their pharmacology and off-target effects than their ability to produce responses in kidney cancer. And 
It's understanding these off-target effects. I'm always struck by an abstract that was presented at ASCO a couple years ago that looked at the response rate to sunitinib and correlated the response rate with the concentration in the blood of sunitinib in patients. And those patients that had a higher concentration of sunitinib had a fourfold higher response rate than those patients with a lower concentration. Does that mean that the concentration was because of the patient's metabolism, because it's delivered orally and has to be digested, or we just don't really understand all the targets that these agents hit? I just want to put a plug in for an article that we have coming out in Cancer Research, which demonstrates that sunitinib has the ability to not only inhibit the tyrosine kinases inside the endothelial cell, but also can cause direct tumor apoptosis, meaning direct tumor killing. And interestingly, at least in these animal and Renka models, we were able to show that it kills the tumor before it inhibits angiogenesis. So again, one of the nice things about being in oncology for all of us is that Yes, we have agents that we're learning about, but we're still learning their mechanisms of action, how best to deliver them, and the opportunities to exploit better biology. So is this maybe a completely different mechanism in terms of anti-VEGF? Yes, and in fact, I appreciate that. In fact, the article goes on to say that we look specifically at something called STAT3. STAT3 is signal transductor activator. And it suggests that maybe even the plethora of targets that these agents have been looking toward are not complete because this is really one of the first demonstrations this novel target, STAT3, can be inhibited by agents like sunitinib and may produce many things. One of them is inhibiting tumor directly. And the other thing that we pointed out growing on Jim Finke's work from the Cleveland Clinic is that these agents can reverse the immune suppression associated with the cancer cell by affecting T-regulatory cells and other immunosuppressive agents that may make the tumor more receptive to immune approaches. What about hypertension as a surrogate for benefit? I know there's been some work in renal. There was a paper in breast. What do we know about that? Yeah, so Bernard Escudier from Paris has done this with the bevacizumab efforts, and he nicely demonstrated that hypertension could not be used as a predictor of benefit. So when we're giving bevacizumab, whether you develop hypertension or you don't develop hypertension doesn't mean that you won't benefit from the therapy. Other things that they've looked at, for example, is in the Averin trial, which is the bevacizumab interferon trial that was used, they also looked at interferon dose. And interestingly enough, they found that even people that couldn't tolerate the regular dose and had to have a dose modification seemed to benefit to the same extent that the people that couldn't tolerate the higher dose. So these biomarkers that are predictive of benefit, I don't think we're yet sophisticated enough to say, wow, if a person becomes really hypertensive, they must really benefit from this therapy, so we just have to control their hypertension. We're not that smart yet. Now, you mentioned exitinib and pizopinib. Can you talk a little bit more about what we know about those agents? So pizopinib has the phase two trial that we did, which was a randomized discontinuation trial where people got a run-in of pizopinib. And then after 12 weeks, objective responders continued on drug, stable disease were randomized to continuation versus placebo, and progressors came off of drug. And what we know is that in that design, which isn't perfect, 
about 35% of patients responded to therapy using objective criteria. Progression-free survival started to approach what we expected from sunitinib. And the drug was very, very well tolerated with the possibility in this phase two trial of reduced hand-foot syndrome. That then went on to a comparable phase three trial where actually before the TKIs were available, GSK, the sponsor, did a pizopinib versus placebo trial. And we're hoping that that trial will actually be reported at ASCO because it's not yet been available in a peer-reviewed journal as yet. And the third trial that GSK is doing, which I think is just fascinating and a field changer, is they have been bold enough to ask the question, okay, we know that we're active, we know that we're tolerated, we think we have a good drug, how does it compare with the NCCN guideline first choice, something like sunitinib? And they're going head-to-head with sunitinib in a one-to-one randomization in what's called a non-inferiority trial meaning that they're not looking to see whether the drug is superior, but is it as good? The second drug, which is excitinib. Can I just ask you if that's the case, presumably the thought would be it'd be equal in efficacy, but less toxic? And that's a question that they're asking and a question that we hope that they will answer so that one of the things that we can start having a conversation with our patients is we have several options. Now let's talk about not only the benefits of the options, but the risk of the options and start to choose things that have equal option on the upside, but potentially less toxicity. And that actually ties into a question I meant to ask you before when you were talking about the fatigue, which is, do we know anything more about the mechanism of the fatigue? We really don't. I mean, we're still at a place with TKI-induced fatigue to manage it clinically. Some people are using Ritalin or Ritalin-like agents to try and help people Obviously, other people are dose-modifying, and they're always worried about dose-modifying because you may lose some of the benefit. It's not predictive in terms of association with fatigue and response. We always have to be worried that the fatigue is in part or possibly related to the hypothyroidism that the TKIs can cause. So we need to be following our patients proactively with TSHs and thyroid functions to make sure their fatigue is not a thyroid-induced fatigue. But we just have not yet really done a very good job as oncologists and clinical investigators of managing the toxicity profiles of these TKIs. Anything else you want to say about either pizopinib or axitinib? Well, I just want to talk about axitinib because it illustrates where other drugs are going. Axitinib is one of those drugs that is a VEGF receptor TKI. Brian Reaney and Oliver Rixey have reported extensively on it. And it's a drug whose IC50, or the concentration necessary to destroy 50% of the cells in a culture, you don't need as much drug to destroy cells with excitinib than some of the other agents. And that has led to the belief that this may be a very powerful TKI in kidney cancer patients. Now, they've taken it into the second line setting, and they've said, okay, in people that progress following sunitinib, Most of those people go on agents like serafinib, so why don't I compare axitinib with serafinib and see whether I can salvage in the second-line setting following a TKI with another TKI? And I think that's a great study, and we're anxious to see that accrue and get the results of that, but it'll set up an interesting dialogue because we know that there's now Everlimus that is now out in the world in terms of the Lancet Phase three publication. But there's a drug which following VEGF receptor progression, whether it's sunitinib or serafinib, 
produced a 4 versus 1.9 month progression-free survival compared to placebo using an agent which inhibits a completely different pathway, the mTOR pathway. And I think many of us would like to have an analysis, which is, okay, when you progress on a VEGF receptor TKI, is it best to try another VEGF receptor TKI, or is it best to move on to a different class of agents like an mTOR inhibitor? Let's talk about your second case. So the second patient is a great patient, a 55-year-old woman who about five years ago also had an episode of hematuria, sought out her urologist, was found to have a 4.5 centimeter clear cell carcinoma, T2, N0, M0, following nephron sparing surgery. Postoperative creatinine was 1.3. She had no comorbid diseases. And she was followed expectantly by her urologist with careful scanning of her chest and abdomen on an every three or six month basis. We saw her this week and she had a growing small volume disease in her chest. So the urologist saw that she had small disease about three months ago, was astute enough to continue to follow it carefully. And when I saw her just this last week, she had multiple bilateral pulmonary nodules, the largest of which was 1.5 centimeters, with no evidence of intra-abdominal disease and an MRI scan of the brain demonstrating no evidence of central nervous system metastases. So we have a young woman who has growing disease, is asymptomatic, performance status of ECOG zero, and then we had to enter into the discussion, how do you approach such a patient? And I gave her a bit of a laundry list, and I'll do that here because I think it's helpful. I talked to her about interleukin-2 and the role of cytokines and cytokine therapy in 2009 in our environment. I then discussed with her the NCCN guidelines, which included sunitinib and frontline therapy, the role of serafinib and whether or not serafinib is an appropriate choice in the untreated patient, the role of bevacizumab either alone or with interferon, and the fact that it's not yet FDA approved and may make it difficult to obtain insurance reimbursement, and also discussed with her the role of a phase three trial that we're participating in. So here's a woman who five years ago would have had two options, IL-2 or interferon, and now has a minimum of four options. And it's critical that the oncologist be sophisticated in the discussion. And this is the conversation. What trial were you thinking about or what you've been eligible for? So the trial that we have ongoing is a phase two trial comparing bevacizumab and interferon to bevacizumab and everolimus. So this is a trial that says, okay, well, we know what bevacizumab and interferon can accomplish. We have the Averin data and the CALGB data. Very good data, phase three trial, doubling of progression-free survival, well-tolerated treatments. Can we, with horizontal inhibition or vertical inhibition, add to that? And we now know that you can combine bevacizumab and everolimus together in almost full doses. And we're answering the question of, if we inhibit VEGF ligand and mTOR at the same time, is that better than just inhibiting the VEGF ligand and at the time of progression treating with some other agent? And that's the trial that we offered. I guess I should ask what you said to her about interleukin-2. What did you say? Well, I said to her that with interleukin-2, we have a clinical trial, the renal select trial. And what we're trying to do is identify the biomarkers that can predict for a person's benefit, but that absent those biomarkers, 
She has about a 5 to 8% chance for a durable remission. And I went through all of the risks of the morbidity and potential mortality. And almost from the beginning, she's married, full-time working, children, and she didn't want that toxicity. So we went on to the other alternatives. So if you put that aside and you say, well, maybe, I guess you don't really exactly have a sense of the exact pace of the disease, but she's asymptomatic, she doesn't have any life-threatening situation, you know, a treatment with minimal toxicity like hormonal therapy or breast cancer would be very tempting, even if maybe it didn't have as great a chance or response as something else. And I'd ask you, what would be the least toxic therapy you could give her? We're not yet at a point where we can say, well... We know that A, B, and C are equally efficacious. Let's just pick the least toxic. So I think at the moment, we're still struck by efficacy. And as struck by efficacy, it's a balanced conversation about sunitinib. It's a balanced conversation about bevacizumab and interferon. And it's a balanced conversation about serafinib, understanding that serafinib may be less toxic, but the randomized data in untreated patients is also less beneficial. I think that for the overwhelming majority of patients receiving bevacizumab, it's an agent that is better tolerated than the oral tyrosine kinase inhibitors. And we have great experience with it. I mean, we have given it in colorectal cancer, breast cancer, and lung cancer, with a few caveats. Some of the severe toxicities associated with bevacizumab can be life-threatening. I'm not aware that the severe toxicities associated with the oral tyrosine kinase inhibitors are life-threatening. And I actually have that conversation with people, especially when they go on a trial, because as you know, we have to list the thromboembolic phenomenon, the bleeding complications. They can occur with the TKIs, but they seem a little bit less frequent. No, I think that's a great point. But I guess just thinking back to seeing bevacizumab using these other tumors, particularly when there's no chemo on board, it's just interesting that I see the renal investigators don't really talk much about Bev alone. It's just Bev interferon or not. Well, I think that's a bit of a complicated discussion. So we published in the JCO, Ron Bukowski was the first author, and we were unable to demonstrate that Bev interferon was any different than Bev alone. And then you come to two large phase three trials, the CALGB trial and the Averin trial, and it's a comparison of Bev interferon versus interferon. Would we have liked to have seen a trial of Bev versus interferon? Absolutely. Do we have that data? Unfortunately, no. But I think what I would say to you, as I say to patients and other physicians, is that you start with Bev interferon based upon peer-reviewed data. You modify the interferon toxicity as soon as you need to. And at the end of the day, if all you're left with is treating a person on Bev alone because they couldn't tolerate the interferon, you recognize that that's still probably likely to be helping the patient. Now, the other thing you bring up, of course, is the issue. It's not a quality of life issue, but as you say, the issue of potential serious complications with Bev. Now, again, thinking of other tumors, obviously, you don't have the pulmonary hemorrhage problem, which is a real issue in lung cancer. Bowel perforation, of course, obviously, that's an issue with colon and ovary. I don't know that it's an issue with renal, is it? Yeah, you know, the reason why I like doing these things with you, Neil, is because I have a big enough clinical practice to have some of these anecdotes. So we saw a patient who was having a spectacular response to sunitinib. And I remember distinctly the wife calling me in the morning from a local hospital. My husband had abdominal pain. He's in the emergency room. I'd like to transfer him to City of Hope for you to take care of him. 
I get on the phone with the ER doctor. The ER doctor describes free air under the diaphragm. I said, don't transfer that patient to me. Get that person to a surgeon and operate on him. And he perfed, didn't have tumor at the site of perforation. So the TKIs can do this just as well as the ligand inhibitors. Interesting. The TKIs can do bowel perforation. Absolutely. And of course, the big one, as you mentioned, is the issue of arterial thromboembolic events. And again, you see data all over the place with that. For practical purposes, what kinds of numbers do you give to people in terms of that risk with BEV, and how do you adjust it to age and prior comorbidities? I don't think we know absolutely how to do that. I think I tell people that the frequency of those complications is very small, certainly less than 5%. And I look at the patient and I say, are they on anticoagulation? Do they have a risk of some atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease that puts them at risk? And I think one of the things that you're getting to is that we're actually going to be choosing these therapies as much based upon comorbid disease as we are based upon the success of the therapies in the individual patient. And I would ask our oncology colleagues to start to evaluate the comorbid disease and how to choose agents because we've just not done that question and done a good job of it. I really like the trial you described. That combination of BEV and Everalignmus sounds like it ought to be a pretty low side effects toxicity combination. Well, be careful. I mean, we know that the combination targeted agents are not as easy to combine as we had hoped. So when you combine, for example, a ligand inhibitor like BEV and a TKI like sunitinib, these are not very easy to combine. The hypertension goes up. The hand-foot syndrome becomes difficult. You also see, I guess, microangiopathic anemia also. Right, exactly. But you wind up not being able to give full doses of either agent. So I think one of the reasons that BEV and RAD together and Everlimus together is interesting is because we can give full doses of the agents, and we can have an honest test of inhibiting the mTOR pathway and the VEGF pathway at the same time. But I would just remind all of our listeners that just because the combination, if it turns out that it's more effective than BEV interferon alone, doesn't answer the question whether the sequence could have been just as good with better toxicity profile. What do we know right now just in terms of side effects in terms of BEV, RAD? Yeah, they're tolerated very well. Obviously, hypertension and the hyperlipidemias and the hyperglycemias associated with each of the agents is of concern, but they don't seem to have kind of in our old story about oncology, they don't seem to have overlapping toxicities that does permit them to be combined. So has this woman made a decision or have you and her made a decision? She did make a decision and she actually called me just a few days ago. She actually chose to participate in the trial. Oh, that sounds good. I like that. And the amazing thing about kidney cancer patients is that their altruism for themselves and for the people that will travel this path in the future has been just extraordinary. I remember not a few years ago when people said, you will never be able to do the size trials necessary to answer the questions in kidney cancer. And we can now put 800 to 1,000 patients on a kidney cancer trial internationally without a blink of the eye. And the other part of that conversation, and I think we should have it, is she said to me, will sunitinib be available to me should bevacizumab and interferon or with RAD not be effective? And the answer is absolutely yes. And she asked me the converse question. She was very bright. She said, and if I do sunitinib, will the trial be available to me? And the answer was unequivocally no. And that's what helped her make the decision about, I'll try the trial first. 
I keep all of my options open, and ultimately I could have sunitinib. And we all know that there's clear data in the literature that sunitinib following bevacizumab, if it stops working, can be very effective. Yeah, it's great when you have trials that really offer. I mean, yes, the altruism is true. But on the other hand, I'm looking at that trial and I'm going, hmm, I wonder what Bev and Rad really would do together. Who knows? Right. And I think the other part of it is, I think that we're in an era where patients are really having conversations about, I understand this is what you want to give me today, but I'm already thinking about tomorrow. What am I going to do if this stops working? Because our conversations basically are, we're not going to cure you with these agents. So people automatically go, I want to make sure that there's an option B and an option C. What will those be? And it's interesting to have that conversation with kidney cancer patients because it's an opportunity that we didn't have five years ago. Well, also, as you pointed out, all the progress that's been made in the last five years, you think to yourself, well, if I can keep myself you know, in pretty decent condition for the next two, three, four years, maybe there are going to be some other agents available. I mean, that's a real possibility now. Oh, you know, the reason that I get up every morning is because I still have patients in my clinic where I had the conversation with them. I don't have options for you except for this drug called sunitinib. And here they are four plus years later on the same drug having participated in the trial, having it become commercially available, and still doing extraordinarily well. So these are great times in oncology for us to start to plan patients' treatment plans over a period of time as opposed to you have one shot and one shot only. So that's a great case. Let's hear about your third one. So the third case is the complicated part. So we have a patient. This is a gentleman who's also about 70 years old. Nephrectomy about a year and a half ago for a T3A lesion, no metastases, He recurred within six months, started on sunitinib, was treated with sunitinib at standard dosing, and then within about eight months, didn't even reach the 11-month progression-free survival, started to progress. Where did he have disease? He had disease in his lung and his liver. Symptomatic? Not at presentation of metastatic disease, but clearly symptomatic now. Now he's an ECOG-1. And it's interesting because I divide TKI progressors into three separate categories. And these have been defined by a variety of people, most recently Roberto Pili at the ASCO GU meeting. One is the people that progress despite everything, and and that's about 20% of patients. You give them sunitinib, and they just do not respond. They grow right through it. The other group of about 40% is people that have a spectacular response, objective remission, goes on at least for 11 or 12 months, probably longer. And then a patient like this current patient, where they really never have an objective remission, it stabilizes, but never decreases by the 30% rhesus criteria, and you kind of are just waiting for them to grow. And also the observation is that oftentimes patients like this don't only grow in existing disease, but also grow in new areas of disease. And in fact, that's what this patient did. So this patient not only developed growing disease in his lung and his liver, but new areas in his lung and his liver. And that really helps me because then I entered into a conversation with him about what are the options. And we have a clinical trial option. The option is Tempsirolimus versus serafinib in sunitinib failures, a phase three trial, very good option. Standard of care option is Tempsirolimus or Bevacizumab or serafinib alone. And then for the listener, we have to start to think about the biology. We have to come full circle to the biology. Now, I may be wrong. And I may be proved wrong through clinical trials, but my bias is that when a person is a rapid progressor, 
or a person is developing new areas as well as growing areas of disease and does not have a long progression-free survival, the biology may be telling me that it's a different pathway that is becoming active. And that's why I was uncomfortable offering this gentleman Tempsirolimus versus Serafinib and offered him an mTOR inhibitor as standard of care. And he agreed and he started and we're proceeding. But it's those subtleties in terms of it's not just progression on an agent, but the nature of the progression on an agent. Is it new disease? Is it growing old disease? What was the duration of the response? Do we have time to see the benefit of an agent that hits the same pathway? These are the questions that I think we're going to have to answer that are going to change the way we practice. What's your experience been with Tempsorolimus, and how would you compare to RAD or Everolimus? So they've not been compared, obviously. And I think that the important thing is they both hit the target. Tempsorolimus is intravenous weekly. Everolimus is oral daily. I think the toxicity profiles look comparable. Evidence-based literature says that if Everolimus were available today, that would have been the agent that I would have chosen because following sinitinib progression, Everolimus is the agent with evidence-based literature that demonstrates benefit. If you were to ask me whether the Tempsorolimus in that same patient population has been studied well enough, the answer is no. But my expectation is that they'd be comparable. Any predictors of response to the mTOR inhibitors? Yeah, so we have an article coming out in cancer that we presented at ASCO last year. And we've looked at the pathway, the mTOR pathway. We've looked at P10. And unfortunately, we've not yet identified biomarkers that can predict for response. We continue to want to look. They're being designed in the neoadjuvant studies. Phospho-S6 is an excellent candidate, but we've not yet been able to find predictors of response to the mTOR pathway in kidney cancer. You know, I have so many pathways getting thrown at me from different tumors that most of them just bounce right off me, but I'm starting to hear more about P10. And again, trying to understand what these things mean. The way I heard in colon cancer, they talk about it sort of being farther inside the cell, you know, deeper beyond KRAS and BRAF. Is yeah, that- so I think the better way for a clinical oncologist to think is rather than trying to remember these complicated pathways. I mean, it's like remembering the Krebs cycle when we were medical students. You remembered it for the test, but then forgot it a day later. It's to remember what they do. And the mTOR pathway is basically the nutrition pathway for the cancer cell. And it's that nutrition pathway, which when inhibited, can basically starve the cancer cell from growth. What do you mean by the nutrition pathway? Glycolysis. Hmm. Can you talk more about that? Now it's starting to come together because I know you get like metabolic changes with these drugs, right? Absolutely. And that's exactly right. So so what exactly does it do then? So what P10 abnormalities and mTOR activation does is it basically drives the nutrition of the cell toward growth. And it's not growing using agent. It's not, yes, it could be using amino acids, but primarily it's a glycolysis-driven pathway. That's why oftentimes we and others have reported that PET scanning can also be used as a good predictor of benefit from inhibitors of the mTOR pathway, because obviously FDG PET is glucose. Hmm. And it also helps us understand why agents like this produce hyperglycemia, hypercholesterolemia, hyperlipidemias. And it will also help us understand some of the next generation of agents. For example, you've probably had on your show before the interesting IGF pathways, the insulin growth factor pathways. And these are pathways that are intimately involved with the nutrition of the cancer cell 
glycolysis, and that's why we're having to start to think about what happens to the sugar balance in these patients, not only their systemic blood sugars, but others. And that's the way I would think about mTOR. Interesting. The insulin growth pathways came up when we got into the issue of diet and cancer progression and colon and breast cancer. Any evidence that diet has anything to do with renal cell? No. I mean, I was actually asked that question Monday in my clinic, and my answer was pretty simple. And that is that we know that in animal models, an animal with a cancer, given a nutrition that is less caloric intense, their tumors grow more slowly. Do we know that that's absolutely true for people with cancer? No. But we also know very much so that there is a strong relationship between obesity and cancer. So do I think or would I expect that well-constructed trials, whether it's in colon cancer, breast cancer, kidney cancer, might be able to get us to understand that patients who are on some kind of a nutritionally balanced treatment and even weight reduction could slow cancer? Possibly. We're just not there yet. Interesting. Any new agents coming along in renal cell that you think might be in the clinic in the next few years? I think that most of the agents that we're talking about are still targeting the VEGF pathway and the mTOR pathway. I think that there are a series of agents that are interesting, but not yet supportive enough to actually be used in the clinic. That's the HDAC inhibitors. The HDAC inhibitors may, Roberto Pili has reported, facilitate and help angiogenesis inhibitors work. So that's an important thing. I think clearly we'd like to know the role of anti-CTLA-4 in kidney cancer. We know that there's clearly patients that benefit, much like the IL-2 story, but it's the minority of patients, so we'd like to know how to pick those patients. My own bias in kidney cancer, and this is where my lab and program are going, is to really not only be investigating these clinical questions, but go back to the laboratory and try and identify new pathways, new targets, new molecules that can really have a big impact on this disease. Because what I'd like to be is I'd like to be here five years from now, not having the same conversation with you as much as I like you, Neil about how to use the TKIs and the ligand inhibitors, but I'd like to make the next incremental jump in kidney cancer to where we can either think about curing people or use other agents in addition to the ones that are now commercially available.